Islands, and there was a war there. And the Falkland Islands is very far south in the Atlantic, and it's populated by couple million penguins, and researchers were there, and they discovered something interesting. As the, the war was progressing, the Royal Navy had Harrier jets flying off the carrier and were bombing uh, the Argentinian positions in Port Stanley, and as the Harriers would come in from the south, 500,000 penguins would all look to the south, and as a jet went by, all the penguins would just in unison all turn and watch the jets go to the north, and then the Harriers would turn around and would be on the return leg. 500,000 penguins would all in unison look to the left, and they'd turn their head the other way. It's the strangest thing. All the research, this is crazy. And then every now and then, the harriers would come directly in from the sea, and the penguins would look up and look up and look up, and they'd all fall over on their back. The moral of the story is, just because a lot of people do a stupid thing doesn't make it not a stupid thing. Traditions get started that way. Somebody does something stupid and it sticks somehow because humans, we like repetition. Give you another example. A guy named Howard Taft, might have heard of him, president of the United States, 1910 on April 14th. He went to go see the Washington Senators play. You probably haven't heard of the Washington Senators. Washington Senators baseball team were known as Washington. First in war, first in peace, last in the American League. He was watching the Senators play. They were getting beat by the Philadelphia Athletics. And Taft weighed a little over 350 pounds. And Taft, at the end of the, the, the seventh, the top of the seventh, when they got the final out, um, he felt he needed to move his fat around a little bit. And he stood up and stretched. And everybody went, whoa, the president's standing up. So everybody else stood up in the stadium. Now we have the seventh inning stretch, which for some reason in the bottom of seventh, we all stand up and sing a chorus to a song about a girl that was trying to get a date to go to a baseball game, written in 1908 by Jack Norwood. Never been to a baseball game, interestingly, had Mr. Norwood. This is all part of the service we have here at Crago's House of Useless Knowledge. But the point is that Howard Taft started a tradition, and now we all follow it. The moral of this story is just because a whole stadium does something stupid doesn't make it not stupid. Stupid things are stupid, and they become traditions. And we have traditions. We all have traditions. We have tons of holiday traditions. I would observe that most of us in this church sit in about the same place every week, don't we? It's a tradition. It's kind of what we do. It's, rep- it's somehow comforting to us. And the, there's, a, there's a danger in this. Traditions can be very, very dangerous in a church. Traditions are the slow knife that you don't even know it went in and causes damage. One of the traditions is that you start to, for me, have this desire to sing and dance right now. Tradition. Tradition. No, I won't do it. Um, but if you're familiar with this, this Broadway play, and a great movie, um, Tevya, the main character, he clings to his tradition so hard, it almost destroys his family. Why is it tradition? And he would go, I don't know. It's a tradition. And traditions without thinking are a problem. And they're a problem for us in particular. Charles Spurgeon, who if you had a Mount Rushmore of uh, Protestant greats, Spurgeon would be one of the faces there. He had this interesting quote. In a spiritual religion... Everything must be understood. 
We are a spiritual faith. Everything must be understood why we're doing it. Not thinking about our actions, not thinking about our traditions can have consequences for us. But what I want to really drive home today, it can have dire consequences for other people. So your central question today, if you're taking notes, you can kind of follow along. Um, The central question is, should we consider our actions? I'll give you the answer now because I don't want to have a sense of suspense going through while I'm talking today. The answer is yes, because our actions demonstrate our beliefs. We should consider our actions because our actions show the world what our beliefs are. If we do actions without thinking, a tradition, we might not be saying what we want to say to the community. Now, one area of church life that is rich with traditions is communion. We're going to observe it this morning. Communion is something that's done by all Christian churches at some time, but everywhere. And throughout all of our history, that's been the case. Along with baptism, it's one of two what we call ordinances in the church, believer baptism and communion. Um, Communion has been celebrated on every continent of the planet Earth. It's been celebrated in Antarctic research stations. It's been celebrated in nuclear submarines on patrol. And when mankind first set foot on the moon, astronaut Aldrin took a small vial of wine and a communion wafer with him. And literally, in the first hour when we set foot on the moon, Christ was remembered. So communion is a, is a big part of it, and it can become a tradition. It can become something we don't even think about. Why do we do tradition? Why do we do this? And if your answer is because that's what we do, that's not good. And so we want to give you some answers to that today. We want to come to our central question, why is it important to consider our actions specifically with communion? And we're going to answer that by taking a look at what was going on in the church at Corinth in the the first letter to the Corinthian church. Before we get into that, let me pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you this morning that we can be together with you, with your people. We ask this morning, Father, that my words would be given wings by your spirit, and that, Father, your word would teach us this morning, not my studies, not my uh, rhetoric, Father, but simply would be your spirit working through your word in each one of our hearts that would teach us and change us this morning. We ask this by the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Very quickly, my friends, we're going to rip through this as fast as we can, so buckle up. Setting. We've got to give a little context. I can't speak without giving you some context. So, the 1 Corinthians, Church of, and the letter to. Um, the author was Paul. There's really no disagreement on that. It was written in A.D. 55. That's about seven years after the book of Galatians was written. Uh, Paul is writing from Ephesus. Not that that's that important, but it kind of fits in if you put the timelines together. Uh, Corinth doesn't look like, well, that's what it looks like today. It was much more uh, beautiful back in the day. Corinth was a city of about 600,000 people. That's roughly Portland. Actually, Portland's a pretty good example of what Corinthians would have been dealing with. Port city, lots of money. And in fact, if you overlaid Portland with uh, Las Vegas, that was Corinth. Lots of money, lots of gambling, lots of idolatry, lots of not-so-good behavior. Um, And it was written to church members. This is not a, a letter chewing out the Corinthians for being gamblers and immoral. It's a letter to the churches in Corinth for not being good churches 
and for doing some things wrong. Like what? Well, their traditions in Corinth uh, had to do with some sexual immorality. It had to deal with a lot of divisions. They were an arguing church. They were noted for that. Uh, They were suing each other within the church. They were worshiping in ways that um, weren't appropriate. Uh, There were uh, a lot of class distinction. The rich people were lording it over the poor people, talking about that makes them more spiritual. In fact, uh, in the ancient world at this time, to Corinthicize was a uh, synonym for immorality. Not a good one. So Paul's pretty mad. (laughs) These people are not worshiping right. And Paul specifically says, you're taking the, the Lord's table, you're following communion the wrong way. And there's some pretty strong language uh, where maybe Galatians, Paul was, there's a little element of humor uh, to us. There's not any sense of humor in this letter at all to the Corinthian church. This letter, unsurprisingly, will be about sanctification, about our daily living to be closer to God in our actions, in our traditions to better reflect God. Sanctification being our second tense of our salvation. That we are justified when we believe, saved from the penalty of sin. We are being sanctified from the power of sin over us. And we look forward to being glorified where we will will be saved from the very presence of sin. And Paul, in this letter, is calling the Corinthian church and us, by extension, to be daily sanctified. To change their behavior, to think about their actions in light of their belief, because your actions demonstrate your belief. Um, culturally, nowadays, this is even more important, I think, than maybe it was in the first century. Roughly 70% of the world around us in Grant County does not know Jesus Christ. They, what our neighbors know about Jesus Christ is not from what you've said. Maybe. But probably not. It's from what you do. We're judged. We're looked at. We're examined. The first door that opens to reach somebody is by actions. The words come later. Sharing the gospel comes later. But it's our actions that really witness to the outside world. So the point of let's be really clear about what our actions are and what are we saying with our actions. Let's distill that down. So we're going to take a look at one of two ordinances of church. You might say, what's an ordinance? You might say, what's an ordinance? Glad you asked that question. Let me tell you what an ordinance of the church is. First of all, let's define ordinance. Charles Ryrie, who would probably be one of those guys on the Mount Rushmore of the faith, he said this, an ordinance is an outward rite prescribed by Christ to be performed in his church. In his church. If you like a more poetic version of that, St. Augustine said, an ordinance is the visible form of invisible grace. You want to make it even simpler? Because I don't like to take a lot of notes. Outward action, inward faith. But make sure you write in church down. Ordinances are not done on your own. They can be. Sometimes they have to be. But they're done as a group. And we'll come back to that uh, a lot. There are two ordinances listed in the Bible. Uh, The first is what's called believer baptism, which we practice at Grace Point. And the second is communion. Some churches have a lot of other ordinances. They might call them something different. Um, I think uh, the Catholic Church has seven sacraments. Might be eight, might be six, I'm not sure. 
um, but they're outward things that reflect something inside. It's an outward tradition of the belief on the inside. You might think of marriage as kind of like that. Uh, marriage is a, an outward um, ceremony that reflects a relationship. Hard to see the relationship. So when we're talking about these ordinances, they're things that reflect an inward belief, which takes us to part three. We're going to look at communion specifically, and I have seven points about communion. I want you to understand, it's my mission today, what happens in communion because it becomes traditional. We do it every month, and it can be something that we do without thinking. And as I've said before, that's a bad thing, especially if somebody asks you, what are you doing? I want you to give you some stuff to answer them with. So this is an important passage. It's a familiar passage, and it can become too familiar. So if you've got your Bible with you, you might flip it open, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is, as we say, familiar ground. If you like to cross-check things, you might have one finger there and one finger in uh, the book of Luke, uh, chapter 22. We'll get to that in a minute. But let me read uh, our passage that controls this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, first point about communion, a little bit of foundation of this, the context of communion, if you will, is about being Christ-like and about being in unity. It's about all of us doing this together. Historically, the context, you've got to kind of put this in perspective. Oh, there's our, our verses. Um, the Last Supper. It's easy to blow past this. This is the last lesson Christ is going to have with his disciples. It's kind of the last time they're all going to be together in one room. They're celebrating the Passover, the Seder, which we've kind of talked about in the past, about how this is the most important of Jewish holidays where they remember a lamb slain to save other people. A little bit of foreshadowing is the Passover for us as Christians. Thousands of years of Old Testament and Jewish history are being remembered with this massive feast. Uh, there's a lot. It's a rich meal. This is a big celebratory thing, and they're gathered together. And Christ says in Luke, he earnestly desired to be there with them. This is important to Jesus, that he's going to have this, this meal together. And yet we know the backside of this, he's already been betrayed. Judas has already worked with the Pharisees. The, the plot is in motion. The next morning, he'll be captured. He'll be put to death. There'll be a trial. And Christ is doing this, this massive lesson about how important this is and giving us this ordinance. And yet, in the face of it, there's all this, this turmoil about to happen. And that's why you want to sometimes, you can read Luke 22, and there's other besides Luke 22, but they, they go together, and Luke 22 gives the firsthand account of it because it's remember, or you need to remember, Paul was not an apostle at this time. Paul was working for the other side. Paul was working on the team that's going to put Christ to death. He was the Pharisee's Pharisee. Paul was a, a zealot.
for the Jewish people. And so what Paul received this knowledge, when Paul was told what happened here, it happened directly from God. And so when Paul is telling his account of this, when he's going to explain to the Corinthians why communion is important, he says, for I received from the Lord. And when Paul said that, he's stating his authority to speak, and he's stating that this is important. Listen up. And there would be lightning in his eyes and thunder in his voice when he would have said that. That would have shocked and caused people to wake up a little bit. And it should maybe cause us just a little bit to wake up and think about what we're doing here in communion. What's the easiest part to overlook in communion? It's the elements. So I want to just talk a little bit about the elements because they're not random. Christ had a table full of food. He picked bread and he picked wine. So I want to talk about bread and wine just a little bit. And this might be like you think you're on the food channel. But trust me, this is important stuff. So here's a picture of a wheat field actually in Israel. And that's what pretty much you'd expect that bread to look like. That's not a giant UFO. It's actually a bread I superimposed. Mad Photoshop skills. Look at that. Pretty good. Okay. Um, Bread um, was historically, bread would be what's called the, the cornerstone of civilization. Humans used to be, when God first had us going, we were hunter-gatherers. We were running around chasing woolly mammoth and antelope and whatever else we could, depending on where we lived. Bread and its corresponding thing, which is beer, actually are what caused us to stop running around. Think about it this way. Bread, in one form or another, is the most universal foodstuff on the planet Earth. You take a grain, you crush it, you add water, a little bit of sweetness, you add heat and you get a loaf of something. You can make it with rice. You can make it with corn. You can make it, as is our common, wheat. It can be made anyway, and you get the stuff. And if you don't bake it, what you have is what was called for the first couple thousand years of history. They called that beer. It's basically liquid bread. If you you don't get it uh, so runny and you bake it, you get bread out of it. And what we call beer is not what they would have called beer for a long time. But it was different because it was nutritious. It was made of different elements, and it was healthy. And you could kind of take it with you. If you bake it, it's pretty easy to store. You can kind of hold on to it. It lasts a little bit longer. And what happened is civilizations figured out that making bread's kind of hard, but you know what? If you have, you know, your buddy Dave grow some wheat, and then you got your buddy Bob who's got a big grinding stone, You can work together, and it's really efficient. And then somebody else gets a bunch of bricks together and they make an oven. They can bake the bread easily. And all of a sudden, society started to form because they would do the stuff. They'd make either the beer, which was healthy, or the bread, which was even more healthy. And people started sticking together to be efficient to make bread. And it made people healthy. When you're healthy, you can do a lot more stuff. And this was the most common, the most humble food you could possibly pick and christ picked it intentionally and you could say it's only because of bread and beer that we have safety health art government cities efficient civilizations where we don't all have to go out and slay the woolly mammoth and chop it apart to have food on the table safeway owes its direct descendant to the humble loaf of bread now in the same way people figured out and that's a that's what Wine fields look like in Israel, uh, I guess, grape fields. What do you call it? Uh, winery, grape. 
Vineyard, thank you, thank you. <laughs> well, we have a few words in the English language for this, and you can't remember the one you need. Um, you take grapes, you crush it, you add a little bit of sugar, you let it sit for a while, and it starts to ferment, and alcohol is formed, and you have this drink. Now, wine is kind of the opposite of bread. Bread's humble. Wine is not humble. Wine is a special thing. And wine has some what they thought were almost magical properties because, as we heard in the compassion video about how many people don't have clean water, back in the day, that was even more rare. Water was not something you really wanted to be around. They didn't figure out that you shouldn't go to the bathroom where you drink your water for a long time. So water was dangerous. Water was, you know, might be good, might not be good. Can't tell. However, alcohol and wine kills the bacteria. Wine is safe. Wine can be poured on a wound and will actually have some antiseptic qualities. Now, not like Bactine, but back then they didn't have Bactine. So wine actually fulfilled a lot of roles. Wine could be transported. You can put it in a jug and it doesn't go bad. And they can move that around. And now, while bread may have started the cities, wine created trade between areas because your grapes are different than my grapes. And I want to try your grapes. And you know what? I can make some wine and I can transport it over to you. And so... Wine became the start of commerce between civilizations, which is good because we share ideas and knowledge and, you know, they know how to slay the woolly mammoth better than us. We can trade, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, There's a book uh, that I would recommend. It's called The History of the World in Six Glasses. It's a book by the guy's name is Tom Standage, and he follows the history of beer, wine, spirits, make sure I look here, coffee, tea, and Coca-Cola throughout 6,000 years of recorded history, and the cultural impact of all those drinks that had on history is phenomenal. It's really kind of funny, but it also causes you to think that when you pick up a glass of Coke, you go, huh, I never thought about the importance of this and what it, how it changed some of the world. Wine, in Mr. Standage's book, uh, records that it was the first trade between countries, but also when it started, wine was pretty common with every, every tried making their own, but very quickly, wine became something for the elite, the upper crust, the people with their noses that go slightly up in the air as they're talking to you, and they start to adopt a bit of an accent. They talk about wine. That's pretty common. That's a cultural thing that goes back thousands of years, and then just before the time of Christ, wine kind of became popular with everybody, but it retained an air of specialness, um, maybe like champagne is looked at by you and I. You know, you see champagne everywhere. When people serve champagne, you're like, oh, it's a fancy meal. We're celebrating something. Uh, you, know, you win a, a, a Grand Prix race, and they, they serve champagne and spray it on everybody. That's a different thing. Anyways, um, wine was a special drink at that time, in the time of Christ. And, in fact, um, wine has an importance in Christianity. First public miracle that Christ performed was at a wedding. They didn't have any wine. And Christ took water, which, remember, was kind of sketchy. And he transformed it into something that was safe, something that was special, and it was a celebratory thing. He transformed water into wine. And that's why, and this maybe will shock you, given our our local heritage, um, for the first 1,600 years of modern civilization, Christianity was uniquely linked with wine because of that miracle. And when the traders were trading the wine, guess what went with the wine barrels? The gospel. Wine traders helped spread the gospel around the Mediterranean. 
And so here in our local church, um, we don't serve wine. And you might ask, why not? Glad you asked why not. It's interesting. So there's actually three reasons for it. And you might, you know, take exception to this. But I'll, uh, this is what the three reasons why we don't. Um, first, we want to be observant. I guess they all have to do with being observant. Uh, we want to be observant to the laws of the United States. Um, you can't drink if you're underage. And there's exceptions for what you do in church. And yet, we kind of felt like, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that. Secondly, we want to be observant to people who maybe are struggling with alcoholism. I mean, statistically speaking... One in five of us have a, a genetic predisposition to become addicted to alcohol. And so if you were struggling with addiction, the last thing you want to do is in church give people a, a little you know, shot of something. That, that doesn't make sense to, in our church. And the third, and this will seem, if you're a historian, you think in terms of thousands of years, right? Very recently, like in the last hundred years, that's very recent, um, in America in particular, uh, there were big evangelical movements that kind of paralleled and got intertwined with the temperance movement or the prohibition against alcohol. Our church, the founders of our church 60 years ago, were a part of that tradition. And so it's, it's a very uniquely, well, not uniquely, it's somewhat American and, and, and little but not all churches believe this, but our founders were part of the tradition where we just abstain. And so there was a, a cultural impact that makes us say, well, we can get pasteurized grape juice. That's still fruit of the vine. Think of it as organic and fresh wine. Just hasn't been fermented yet. And we're observing, but we're also trying to be sensitive to those three issues I mentioned. That's why we use Welch's instead of whatever from Cave B. Now, think of, go back to the meal. Twelve sitting around, big meal. Christ is going to pick some elements to teach with. He picks bread, and he picks wine. He picks humble, and he picks special. He picks two elements with this history behind them that would have been more well-known. Uh, when you didn't have Safeway, you paid attention to food a little more. Easy for us to kind of overlook where food comes from. You know, I, I had students back in the day that thought hamburgers come from Safeway. They just appear. I, you know, no notion that there was something, you know, an animal involved in this. Third point. All that being said, it wasn't an accident. Christ didn't randomly pick the bread and didn't randomly pick a cup of wine. There's history behind this. Third thing, I think it says on your notes, I think it says prayer, but really what it should say, because I edited this um, yesterday, preparation. And two things go on. First thing, if you, when you read your verse, what's Christ do before he picks up anything? He gives thanks. He prays to God. Now, Christ is God, and yet Christ is also fully man. And before he does anything, he prays. And praying is a tradition Christ had. Praying is an action that has meaning to Christ's beliefs. And if, when we pray, when Christ prays, it demonstrates a lot of stuff. It demonstrates a humility before God. It demonstrates an obedience to God. It demonstrates an examples of forgiveness, of gratitude, and of even godliness, that when we're called to pray, we're exhibiting a, a sense of godliness when we pray, whether it's we're following Christ's example or in our own. It shows something to the outside world. I think it's remarkable when you look at Christ's prayer, giving thanks, and he knew the next day he's going to be betrayed. He's going to his death soon, an unjust death. It's remarkable. That was a very godly 
thing to do, to pray in those circumstances. Now, what did the apostles do? What we would have done. They end up arguing about, well, who's going to betray? Oh, who is it? I'm going to speculate. And then they start arguing, who's the best of us? Who's number one? And they have this very human discussion in the face of this, which, you know, it's easy to kind of tease those guys a little bit, but we, that would be us. We're short-sighted. We miss on that. Prayer is important. It's part of the preparation process. But before you partake in it, before they, uh, we remember Christ, if you go look at verse 27 real quick, it's important that we prepare. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're to examine ourselves. What are we supposed to examine ourselves for? Sin. Unconfessed sin. Before we drink, before we eat, before we commune together to remember God, we're to examine ourselves and confess any sin we have in our hearts. That's a big deal here. It's a big deal to your leadership. <clears throat> and this is one of those things nobody knows but you and God, what's in your heart. Nobody's going to check you uh, before we hand you the bread. But it's a big enough deal that your elders, from time to time, uh, one of us will not serve communion because we're kind of wrestling with something in our heart. We're unsettled about something. We don't feel it's right to serve in that manner because it might be unworthy. And it's better to err on the side of caution. Okay? Being guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus is a serious thing. So your elder team takes this very seriously. And I would encourage you to take it seriously as well. And before we partake today, there will be a little time of silent prayer. That's a time to confess between you and God anything that's sin that's on your heart and make sure that's clean before you partake. That's doing it in a worthy manner. We always want to do this in a worthy way. If you're a young person, if you have kids, it's one of those things where as a kid, I'd say don't just follow what the adults are doing. Think about what you're doing. If you're a parent and you have kids and their kids are of age and they're Christians, you know what's going on, that's between you and your family. That's not something the church has. I would just say make sure that that's part of communion, is knowing that we do this where we don't have sin in the camp, where we don't have something unconfessed in our heart. And it's a, it's a quick thing to fix. It's a good thing to fix. But it's right there in Scripture. Do this in a worthy manner. The fourth point, and this is the heart of the message, what's going on here? What's the meaning of communion? And <clears throat> like people say on Facebook, it's complicated. Except it's really not. We've made it complicated. Humans are good at making things complicated. But if you take a look at all of Christianity, there's really four different perspectives on what's going on in communion. If you look at your notes and flip them over on the back, <clears throat> you'll see a chart that looks a lot like this. And there's some good $10 words in here. Uh, four views of <clears throat> what happens in communion, what the meaning is. I want to share these with you because I think it's good to know the different views and to think about these things. I share these with you not so we can feel superior. Not so we can go, oh, we've got it right and the Catholics don't. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. This is for your knowledge. This is to know and better understand what we are doing and what we believe so our actions reflect those beliefs. But we need to have great respect 
We need to have great understanding. And while we may disagree with the conclusion of another church, we should not disagree with their motive. We're all here to worship Jesus, and we might do it in slightly different ways, and we might base our decisions based on different things. So, again, I don't want you to walk out of here with kind of a little sense of pride, um, maybe a sense of comfort, and maybe a sense of, well, let's think about what we're doing here. But here's the four views. The first one is called transubstantiation, which that's a big word. What it means is changed substance. And it's primarily a Roman Catholic belief. And what the belief is that when Christ held up the bread and said, this is my body, the Roman Catholic belief is he meant it literally, that it transforms into his body. And in their doctrine and their belief structure, when the priest prays over the elements, the bread and the wine, they literally transform into the body of Christ and into the blood of Christ. And when you consume it, you are literally sacrificing Jesus at that time and you are being saved all over again at that time and being recovered with his blood at that time, literally, not figuratively, not teaching. And um, I have a good friend who's Catholic. He's actually in town this weekend. But we have these arguments all the time uh, in fun, in, in not quite teasing, but you know, good-natured argument of Ray. He's, he's holding bread. He's not holding up his arm. And Ray says, but he says, this is my body. And so we go back and forth with this all the time. And it's good because this is only a 2,000-year-old argument. We want to feel like we're doing our part. There's some issues with that, um, depending on how you get there. And the problem with it is you have to be inconsistent with how you translate and how you interpret the Bible to arrive at transubstantiation. Uh, Christ used metaphors all the time. He taught differently all the time. He, and this is the most important part, when Christ died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And the word he picked is a very important word, and there's no ambiguity to it. It's not like it is finished except for every time you do communion. It is 100% gone, done, end of story, completely fulfilled, and you can't, that's inconsistent to get to a ceremony where you believe that you're, you're sacrificing them all over again every time. John 19.30. Read that if you need a reference for that. Very important about how we view salvation and your eternal security. Second view, consubstantiation, okay, which is also a big word. It's a Lutheran belief, and the idea is that while it's still bread, it's surrounded by and penetrated by and fulfilled with uh, Jesus. And Martin Luther, important guy in the faith, he gave the analogy of it's like you stick a rod into an iron fire. The fire is all around the rod, but it's still a rod. And in that faith, when you consume, when you partake of the elements, you receive forgiveness at that time. You receive grace at that time. And so the communion in the transubstantiation and in the consubstantiation the communion is vertical. You're communing with Jesus at that time, and you receive something by partaking. And again, it has the same problems that you have with transubstantiation in terms of consistency and in terms of interpretation and being consistent, that you receive grace through the elements. The third view is Reformed view. And a lot of churches uh, follow the Reformed view. It's primarily Presbyterian. And if you see Reformed on the church, they're probably going to have this view they say anything about Calvin, it'll have this view. And the idea here is that Christ is present spiritually 
in the wine and bread. And it's very similar to memorial view, but the difference is you receive grace. They believe that you actually receive a blessing or forgiveness by eating the bread, that spiritually Christ is in that bread and spiritually Christ is in the cup of wine. The problem with that is when Christ said, do this in remembrance of me, he didn't say, do this and get grace. Nowhere in the Bible does it record that you get grace by doing something other than believe. Okay, very clear. When you believe, you're saved. You don't do something to get a blessing of grace from that. The fourth view is what we teach here at Grace Point in that it's a memorial view. That it's, uh, you'll see this a lot in Baptist churches, Mennonite churches, and then I would, I don't know if I'd say the majority, I would say many um, Bible churches will have a memorial view in that believe that Christ was using these tools, these elements as a tool for memory, to remember something about Jesus. And it's, it's just bread, and it's just wine, and there's meaning behind it, and it's, but it's to help us remember. It's not uh, to give grace on any way. When Christ says, do this in remembrance, that's what, he's, what you're supposed to do. It's a clear understanding of the text. Growing up Presbyterian, I always believed communion was this way. We come to communion to commune with God, which if you think about it, do you have to go somewhere to have God with you? Doesn't he say he's always with us, will never leave us? That doesn't make sense. What's communion about? It's here. It's horizontal. It's us communing together to remember Christ. And that, that shocked me. That I'd, I mean, literally, when I was studying this week is when I, I had that epiphany of communion's about us. That's the ceremony. It's about us remembering Christ, but it's about us being together and why that's important and why we remember his salvation, which is so much going on in salvation with Christ substituted himself for us. He covered our sin. He took it away. There's important things happen with that salvation, and it's a lot to try to remember when we remember Christ, but that's what we're called to do. That's what this is for, is to act on our beliefs in a way that we remember Christ. That salvation is all by God, all done by God. All you have to do is believe. It's permanent. What God did, we can't undo. So you're eternally secure if you're a believer. Hmm. Any group of people decides, I never take it for granted that everyone is a believer here today. You might have been coming to this church for decades. That doesn't mean... You've accepted Christ. Today's a good day to consider that, if that's you. If you're here, you don't know Jesus, today is a great day to do that. There could be an asteroid hurtling towards us right now. It's going to land on this church in five minutes. What's going to happen to you when that hits? Where do you believe you'll go? Have you, if you're in the situation of you've not considered uh, and accepted Christ, you need hope? Hope something that's important to have? Have you ever wondered how 12 people in a little dusty part of the world became billions worldwide thousands of years later? We're about to put our faith into action. We're going to celebrate communion in just a few minutes. If, that, if you're not a believer, don't just observe. I mean, it, it's a piece of Pillsbury dough and it's a little couple ounces of grape juice. It's not going to give you a blessing. It's not going to save you. It's not going to do anything. There's no mystery in these elements. The mystery is what God has done in my heart. 
and what God has done in your heart if you're a believer. And that's what's exciting about this. These are things to memorize. So if you're not a believer today, I would really encourage you just to observe, consider, and then come talk to me afterwards. I'll kind of hang out up front. Um, you can talk to anybody, frankly. There's a lot smarter and better people than me to talk to, but I will certainly make myself available. Consider those things. So our fifth point, and as the men, if they'd come up, uh, we're going to kind of do communion kind of in the middle of what we're talking about today. The two things we're going to do, if the men who are going to serve, go, come on up, don't be shy. Um, we're going to remember first what God did for us in breaking his body, that our sin has consequences, our actions have consequence, and the price has to be paid. The price for sin is death. Now, it should be us that die on the cross, but Christ took our spot. He substituted himself in for that. Before we remember that price that had to be paid, before we remember um, what Christ did for us, let's take a moment of silent prayer. We said you need to be prepared. You need to examine yourself, it says in the verse. Let's do that. And if you have any unconfessed sin in your heart, now's a perfect time. Let's give a couple minutes of silence, a couple seconds of silence, um, and make that confession to God. So to symbolize his death, Christ took the very humble, the very common bread, and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. And we're going to follow Christ's example this morning, and I'll ask Bill Carell uh, to give thanks for the bread this morning.
So if you would stand with me, you know, I like to do communion just a little bit differently, but again, the importance of what we're doing today is not just that we remember Jesus, but we remember Jesus together. So if you'd hold the bread in your right hand and you just reach out with your left hand as it's convenient, you don't need to be all legalistic and have to connect everybody. I like to just connect and commune with each other physically, just a a little touch there. This is something that we do together to remember what Christ has done for us, breaking his body, sacrificing himself on our behalf. Let's do this together. And if you'd be seated, after breaking the bread, Christ picked up a cup of wine. Again, rich meaning behind that was not accidental. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, the covenants we've talked about before, but this covenant, the new covenant, is a promise from the book of Jeremiah. And part of it we've already observed today. You don't need a priest to confess your sins before God. You go right to God. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit's within you. We've been adopted into the family of God. We are part of his family. We have eternal life. No one can take that away from you. It's permanent. You are secure if you're a believer with God forever. And that's part of the blessing, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this new covenant that will have eternal life with God. So following the example of Christ as recorded for us, I'll ask Mark to give thanks for the cup.
So if you would stand with us once again. Christ takes a cup, symbolic, rich meaning. Keep it in your right hand, reach out to your left hand. So we'll commune together. Remember the covering of Christ's blood on us, the symbol of the covenant of eternal life given to us for belief. Let's remember him together. If you could just go ahead and sit down. Unless you want to stand. Up to you. Um, I'm going to stand if that's okay. Uh, Seventh point as we wrap this up. We've done three things this morning. We've made a tradition, an action that reflects something we believe. We've done two of them. Well, actually, we've done all three, but we've only talked about two.